0: From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is...
1: The Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners.
0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode. We're so happy you're tuning in wherever you're tuning in. Yeah. You know how we like to talk about movies that we watch and enjoy on this podcast on occasion. So I re-watched a few weeks ago the green mile came out in 1999 Tom Hanks plays a warden at a prison or prison guard really who's in charge of death row and this death row inmate who comes to be killed in the electric chair is charged with a horrific crime uh, a double rape and murder of two young girls he's innocent and uh, his name is John Coffey. Notice the initials, JC. Now, when we first watched this movie in 1999, we may have seen it in the theater or...
1: I'm not sure. Right when it
0: came out on mm-hmm. DVD or something. But anyway, we saw it a w- long time ago. hmm And I, I was... I mean, I liked the movie. It was intriguing to me. There's this whole mystique about John Coffey. He... He has this ability to cure people of diseases, and he he absorbs evil. He's very sensitive to evil. He takes it into himself. What I didn't see when I first watched the movie years ago when it came out, and that I saw so powerfully now. It's a three-hour and 10-minute movie, and I've watched this thing three times in the last month. (laughs) Like I got into I did the deep dive. And Wendy, you know, when, <laughs> you know when this happens to me. Like, I will spend a lot of time looking up interviews and commentaries. Right. And I watched it once on my own. Then I watched it with you. Then I watched it again and went through and took notes on it. I was really getting into analyzing it. And, oh, my gosh, it is one of the most Christian secular movies I've ever seen. Uh, it, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, You see executions in electric chair. You see an execution that goes wrong, and this dude catches fire. It's a Stephen King story turned into film, and Stephen King himself says it's the most faithful film adaptation of anything he's ever done. But I'm telling you, this is a profoundly insightful movie about the message of the gospel, that we have a savior, J.C., Jesus Christ, who absorbs evil this this movie absorbs evil in order to set other people free from it this movie is the most honest look i've at human suffering and the horror of human suffering and the real grappling with human suffering that i've ever seen and i'll just give you one insight as to why this movie is so profound in its storytelling so so tom hank's character um, he's read the transcript of what this John Coffey character is accused of doing. And it has horrified him. And he's up late at night. He can't sleep. And his wife comes down and and, and says, why can't you come to bed? And well, I, I read this transcript today of what this guy's charged with. And I he says, it's a wonder God allows such evil ever to happen. And at this moment, The wife takes Tom Hanks' character and just holds his head to her heart, but she's wearing a cross, and it's right there. Tom Hanks, he's putting his head on the cross right as he has asked this question, how can God allow such things? The message of this movie is God does not allow these horrors without his own willingness to descend into these hells with us. That's the message of this movie. For those who want to watch it again or watch it for the first time, one of the keys to interpret the movie is the metal that the woman John Coffey heals puts around John Coffey's neck. It's the key to the whole thing. And keep your eye out for the crucifixes in this movie. Keep your eye out for the name of jesus in this movie there's will just give you one little another, another little hint to this when when tom hanks's character paul edgecombe is his character when he's first reading the transcript and he gets to this the most horrific part of it he says jesus and he's not taking the lord's name in vain but why did the author of the movie insert that right there Precisely because this is the message of the movie. Jesus is with us in the most horrific realities of our lives Mm. and of this earthly existence. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Powerful movie. Powerful movie.
1: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I I really was moved by watching it with you, and I've seen just the the deep dive bearing a lot of fruit, and that's beautiful. It was a message
0: I needed to hear. That Jesus is with me in my sufferings. I need to hear that. I Mm -hmm. need to know that. Mm -hmm. We all need to know that.
1: We do. Can I ask you to just give us a little institute update right now? I
0: will. Okay. And you can. Okay. You did. Please do. So I shall. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Courses on the horizon. Uh, Check out the link below. We have um, the Writings of John Paul II online course coming up. We have, in person, The Way of Beauty, second week of January. We have Love and Responsibility, the third week of January, taught in Sydney, Australia, by yours truly. I'll be making a trip to Australia, so those who live in that part of the world or those who want to make a trip to Australia, you want to do a deep dive into John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility, it will rock your world and change your life. Just saying. And then the end of January, we have the Sexual Integration and Redemption course here in Pennsylvania taught by the uh, Desert Stream Ministries team, Andrew Kamiski, and his team.
1: A lot of great courses yeah. coming up. Check them out. Yeah. I have a question ready for you from a patron. Let's do it. This is from Joe.
0: Hello, Joe. Thank you so much, Joe, for your belief in what we're doing and your monthly support. Cannot do it without people like you. So grateful to you, brother.
1: Christopher, I recently attended your Made for More event in Miami. Amazing talk. We briefly spoke afterwards, in which I told you I was praying hard for an answer to an issue I'm struggling with. And the Lord brought me your video on true purity. It really helped me, for which I am thankful. I
0: remember this, Joe.
1: Mm -hmm. Before I ask my question, I feel I need to lay a foundation for it. I'm a recent convert to the faith within the last year and a half. I'm 40 years old, a husband and father to three kiddos. I had no faith growing up, zero, so I'm a convert from nothing. Mm. I grew up in a family dynamic where porn and masturbation were normalized. It was just a natural, normal thing to do in private, of course. Mm. So I spent all of my adolescent and adult life watching pornography and masturbating almost daily. So, fast forward to an early moment in my walk with our Lord. In a true moment of clarity, all I could think of was the word, pure. Oof. I needed to be pure. And porn and masturbation is what the Lord was pointing out as my impurity. I went to my wife, told her everything about my problem. Yes, this disgusting routine continued through the first seven years of my marriage. Bless you, brother. Bless you. And I stopped porn and masturbation at that moment. I was committed to the Lord with all my heart and my soul— depended on this action. Amazing, right? Now, the real, true battle has ensued, the demons of thought. Yes. I've spent so much of my life looking at, not seeing, women. In the same way I viewed them on my screen, watching porn, objectifying them for my own selfish desires. I can't go out into public, see a woman, and not be bombarded with objectifying and lustful thoughts. My brain is wired this way. And uncrumpling that paper—awesome analogy—is so very hard. Going to your video on true purity, seeing the woman the way the Lord would see her, I can't even quiet my thoughts to focus on Him in these moments. Then I'm plagued by guilt for fear I've committed a mortal sin, can't receive communion until my next confession, and the vicious cycle continues. Then I head to work. I work in a place of mostly men with type A personalities— law enforcement. Lustful conversations dominate the because it's the only common ground conversation men I work with seem to always rely on. I just want to crawl under a rock and become a hermit sometimes. But I know that's not the answer. Our Lord plus prayer is the answer. I know this and I still struggle. Even question if I know how to pray properly. I'm a mess. Any more wisdom or advice you can give on this issue would be awesome. I really feel this issue of lust is where the devil is gaining the most ground on so many souls in society these days, especially in men. This spiritual battle is real, brother. This is the hardest thing I have ever faced in my life, and I have to overcome this. My soul depends on it. Thank you.
0: Joe, my brother, I remember our exchange. Uh, I'm so glad that you found that video. I'm so glad you came to the Made for More event in Miami. I'm so glad you've written to us. Here's what comes to me just as I, I hear your question, brother. Um, I must overcome this. My, how do you say? I must overcome this. My life depends on it. My soul depends on it. Mm-hmm. There, obviously, there's a truth there. But what I'm, what I'm sensing, uh, and it takes one to know one, is, is a, a sin of self-reliance. And above all, my brother, self-reliance <laughs> is where we're going to fail, right? Uh, my, my confessor has told me that every time I go to confession, I need to confess the twin sins of self-reliance and self-condemnation. Why are they twin sins? Why do they go together? Because our self-reliance is not reliable. And when our self-reliance fails, we have this idea that I should be able to overcome this. Why can't I fix myself? Why can't I get my thoughts straight here? Why can't I do the right thing? And then when we fail, when our self-reliance demonstrates itself again and again to be unreliable, then we fall into self-condemnation and self-loathing. I hate myself. I beat myself up because I can't get my S-H-I-T together. Those, those sins are a deadly one-two punch. And speaking from the perspective of I'm 54, and I started taking this battle seriously in my early 20s, like 2021. 20, so 33-plus years— I have been taking this battle very seriously and I would say looking back at it, my biggest sin has been self-reliance and self-condemnation. And as I look back at 30 years, I, I've there have been beautiful victories and there have been tragic falls. Um, that's the reality of the journey. When or let me put it this way, not when, but to the degree that we are converted from self-reliance to total dependence on our Savior to save us. Total dependence on our Savior to save us, to the degree that we have surrendered ourselves to our Savior, and we don't think of ourselves as our own Savior. But we are in the posture, in our poverty, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness of saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, Or, you know, I was thinking of the blind man there. Jesus, Son of David, uh, have mercy on me, I want to see. That should certainly be our prayer. But also that the Jesus prayer of the Eastern Church, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, I think is the way it goes. It's a very simple prayer have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Brother, take that up as a refrain in your life. Have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord. Let your self-reliance, repent of your self-reliance whenever you see that tendency in there to, I got to fix myself. I got to do it. I got to save my soul here. I got to get it right. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Change that into Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. A few other just practical suggestions, brother. Basic principle. Garbage in, garbage out, right? You have been formed and shaped over the course of many, many years by porn. Garbage in, garbage out. The truth is also when we bring the holy and the sacred, the true, the good, and the beautiful in, when we let, when we let that inform us, it will also serve us tremendously in being transformed. Immerse yourself in the true, the good, and the beautiful. The way we heal bad eros is with good eros and plenty of it. The solution here is not to squash erotic desire, but to find the deepest place in your heart of erotic desire and learn the true path of its fulfillment, which is not merely, it's partly learning how to love your wife more uh, beautifully and purely, but Eros ultimately can only be satisfied in union with the infinite. What we are really looking for when we turn to porn, when that desire gets untwisted, what we're really looking for is union with infinite beauty. Union with infinite beauty. When we turn to porn, we are turning to the mockery the diabolic mockery of the sacramental sign of the ultimate reality for which we are destined. Let me say that one more time. When we turn to porn, we are turning to the diabolic mockery of the sacramental sign that points us to what we really desire. The marital union is not ultimately what we're looking for in our eros. It's, Rightly understood, it's the sacramental sign, it's the window, it's the icon, it's the earthly foreshadowing of the ultimate reality that saint after saint after saint has described as nuptial union with love eternal. That's what we ultimately desire. Pope Benedict XVI says, when the Christian prays, he's seeking nuptial union with the Lord that's what we're after, union with the the God who made us. Uh, Brother, you you said in your question, I don't even know if I know how to pray. I think you, you may be underestimating yourself or may have a very skewed notion of prayer. This may sound strange at first, and if it does, stay with me, stay with me. The very desire that you would seek to take to porn can become a most potent, powerful prayer. Because prayer, the fathers of the church tell us, and here I'm quoting Pope Benedict XVI again, prayer, properly understood, the fathers of the church tell us, is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. We must become, these are my own words here, we must become an all-consuming eros, for the living God. And brother, you know how to pray because you know how to desire. The problem is those desires have been misdirected. Prayer is learning how to allow the Holy Spirit to direct those desires to what you really desire. So back to that principle, garbage in, garbage out, truth in, truth out, right? The holy in, the holy comes out. Inform your heart and your mind with the true, the good, and the beautiful. And by that, I mean sacred reading or reading of, of holy things, reading of, of spiritual books, reading of, if you haven't been through my catalog of books, I'd highly recommend you start with Good News About Sex and Marriage, the QA book, then move to Theology of the Body for Beginners, then move to Fill These Hearts, then move to... Uh, I would probably recommend my latest book, maybe next. My latest book, which is called "Eating the Sunrise," is all about how to learning how to redirect eros towards the beauty we really long for. The rising sun in the sky is a sign of the coming of the bridegroom Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, and so this this is really this book is all about learning how to discover the liturgy, the Mass the Eucharist as the fulfillment of the deepest longing of our hearts. Uh, And then I'd go from there and I would read, I'm looking at my shelf here of books. Oh, Heaven's Song. Heaven's Song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put that on your list. That's, I tell lots of stories in there of sexual healing. And I take you through a tour of John Paul II's teaching on the Song of Songs. Um, Oh, Love is Patient, But I'm Not. I tell a lot of stories from my own life of my own need for God's mercy and my own journey. Uh, I've written other books too, but I won't go through them all now. And my brother, come, 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 come to TOB1. Start there and then work your way through our whole certification program. You will not regret immersing yourself ever more deeply in the vision John Paul II has given us. I'm going to pause there because I could go on and on, but I, I can't for the sake of the length of this episode.
1: There are a lot of amazing resources available and I think needing practical help is, there's nothing, no shame in that. That is so true, your insight about the brain wiring. Sometimes people say sort of there are these really deep ruts in in the pathways or in the kind of trails in our minds and to to not travel you know, in those ruts anymore is a process of, you know, kind of creating new trails <laughs> through our thoughts. So I, I really think clearly it is a process and you're in that process. Um, I I know that there are additional resources I'm thinking of, maybe like some life coaching Possibilities. Is there a specific oh, yeah, ministry yeah. you want to recommend? Yes, there, yes,
0: freedom coaching. Freedom coaching. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes here, and I'd recommend if you're able, uh, go if look up the the coach named Steve Motel, M O T Y L. If there are any other men out there struggling with these issues, Steve Motel uh, is someone I highly recommend as a life coach to to walk you step-by-step into freedom. And he's a coach for an organization called Freedom Coaching. If Steve is not available, uh, Steve Percorny is another one I'd highly recommend, but they have a team of men trained to help men find real freedom from this pattern of being gripped by pornography. And if I may say one more thing, Joe, if there's one course that you would come to in the next year at the TOB Institute— come to the Sexual Integration and Redemption mm. course at the end of January. Beautiful. You will not regret it, my right. brother.
1: That is so true. And
0: as a patron, dip in already to the retreat I did with Andrew Komisky and his team on sexual healing and the other retreat I did with Dr. Bob Schutz. Give that a look at your patron website.
1: Yeah. The only thing I want to add is I don't know where Joe's wife is in terms of faith. He, he didn't mention that, but I— I would recommend just simply asking her to be praying for you, if maybe there could just be a daily prayer that she could be willing to pray for you in words that are comfortable for her for your healing on this journey, because that that is important. I'm not saying she needs to know all the details that, of what you're going through. That depends on your relationship. but. Regardless, if, if you could ask her to be praying for you, I think that that can d- really make a huge difference. Amen. Our next question is from Catherine. She says, I recently heard that circumcision is mutilation. I had no idea about this and would never have considered it a sin until now. I had my infant son circumcised. It was simultaneous with a corrective procedure for penile torsion. I figured my son would want to look the same as Dad, and I thought there were health benefits as well. I was not informed about the male's sensitivity being lessened, nor that it was mutilation. I consider myself to be a fairly well-educated Catholic, but never heard this until now. I'm feeling guilt for having my son circumcised. Should I confess this? And how can I tell my son I had him mutilated? Why isn't the church more upfront about this in marriage prep? My husband is not Catholic, and this situation would be especially difficult for him to handle. And I fall—I feel awful for my boy.
0: Dear Catherine, bless you, dear Mama. Bless you and the sensitivity of your heart. Uh, I just want to speak into this in a way that I think will... Relieve you of the sense of um, guilt here. Uh, I think it would be a stretch to call this a sin uh, because uh, circumcision, let us remember, is the sign of the old covenant that God commanded Abraham and all his male descendants to be circumcised. So there's a profound religious meaning to circumcision. Um, That said, we have to recognize that the roots of Jewish circumcision are different than the roots of circumcision in the United States. And I'm assuming she's from the United States because it's one of the only countries, really, of the Western world that that kind of institutes circumcision as a normal practice uh, of medicine. I, I hesitate even to say of medicine because... I, I have you know well, Wendy, what you and I went through when you were pregnant with our first, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, or maybe I can let you tell that story. but um, yeah, i would i would no, I would not say that you have sinned. Uh, although the roots of circumcision in America are rooted in a kind of puritanical fear of sexual pleasure and particularly of obviously male sexual pleasure. and The roots of it lent itself to a form of mutilating the penis that really removed much more skin in a typical American circumcision than was removed in the Jewish practice. Uh, The Jewish practice of circumcision has a profound religious meaning. We've talked about this before on the podcast, so I won't get into a lot of detail here. But just simply put, it seems to me that that God is trying to teach Abraham and all of his descendants something the woman already knows, that to participate in the covenant, remember what the covenant promise was, offspring, 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 to participate in the covenant promise is going to demand the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood. Woman already knows this. She bleeds every month. Her body is much more intimately related to the whole process of, of obviously, pregnancy and childbirth. The man can plant a seed and go his merry way, and that is the origin of so much suffering in this world. Men planting their seed and abandoning the wife and the child. It seems to me that God is telling Abraham, you want to image my fatherhood? It's going to hurt. It's going to demand sacrifice, right where it hurts, the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood. Christ himself was circumcised. He was a Jew. And when he hung there on the cross, naked on the cross, which was part of the gruesome spectacle of Roman crucifixion, everyone would have known he was a Jew. And this is the fulfillment of the sign, because the crucifixion is the ultimate nuptial union, and it's the ultimate sacrifice of flesh and blood for the most fertile union ever on planet Earth, the mystical nuptials of Christ and the church through which all Christians are regenerated. So, there are profound, profound religious meanings here. We know, of course, in the New Testament, what is required is not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart, right? So, it's no longer a practice of of Catholicism that we be circumcised. In the flesh, but we must be circumcised in the heart, and that happens through living out the grace of our baptism and the other sacraments. All that said, uh, you were raised in America, I'm guessing. This was probably just kind of the common practice. That's the way I was raised. Uh, I was circumcised when I was born because that's the thing that you do. Um, yes, I just announced to the whole world I'm circumcised. If you wanna, <laughs> that just felt a little weird. <laughs> a little, uh I don't know, a little revealing. But anyway, it's part of the story here because when you were pregnant, Wendy, do you want to tell that story?
1: Sure. I'll try to share that quickly. And I was a nurse before we were married. I went through nursing school and um, I remember witnessing a circumcision being done in part of my clinical training and was quite alarmed by the suffering that this baby went through um, that was... I had already learned in my nursing class that there wasn't any health benefit of circumcision. So having that as, you know, in my background knowledge and then witnessing the suffering um, was kind of deeply impressive to me in a way that said, we'll not do that to my child, absolutely not. There's no benefit, and that's a terrible thing to do. That's how it seemed to me, and I don't know all the methods of circumcision, whether they all cause as much suffering as that dear baby suffered, but I witnessed it and was not willing to allow that. Um, But, you know, it's kind of surprising when you come into marriage with a strong opinion about something that isn't—we don't share it. You know, you didn't have that experience yourself. So it was something we certainly talked about, and— um actually, there was a, a just a whole issue of a magazine dedicated to the question of circumcision that was current at that time. Was it a parenting magazine? Yeah, I think it? it might have been called Motherhood. Um, but uh, that we were given, I think, in our childbirth education class or something that really, the articles in that really were an education for you.
0: Opened my eyes. Yeah. And and this is why I just told the whole world that I'm circumcised because it's part of this story. Like I just, I came into marriage thinking, well, if we have sons, I want them to look like me. Um, and then you said, would you please read this? And man, were my eyes opened. And it answered some questions I had about my own uh, anatomy and... Uh, I didn't realize what how much foreskin was removed and what that can do to the anatomy. And yeah, I'd, I'd encourage any men out there if you you were circumcised in the United States, uh, start doing some research. There is a there was a documentary some years ago I watched. I don't know if it was Netflix or what on a, a movement in the United States to get circumcision banned, and it was a little politicized and kind of over the top. Uh, in trying to, you know, make people feel guilty and and using words like mutilation. And uh, is it bodily mutil- mutilation? I think at some level that word applies. But again, I, I want to leave room for that Jewish practice, uh, which is biblical, and which is different than the circumcision rooted in Puritanism. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: and that circumcision rooted in Puritanism, I do believe we could call bodily mutilation. Um can you, go some, yeah. Ahead, there's Wendy.
1: something I'm just feeling like I want to share yeah, here that when we are become aware of suffering that has happened, like in our past, maybe that we don't have conscious memories of, yep. it can stir up complicated feelings. Yep. And I think that happened for you. It and sure it, did. It happened for me too in relation to the man that I love. In relation Would that to be you, me? yes. But I'm just saying it, it in that sense of. I, I felt a, a love for you in the time, you know, all in all of your life long before I knew you and a concern for that suffering and how it impacted you as a newborn. Um, and I think yeah. for us, like, it's been so helpful to to pray for healing of wounds that are just kind of scars in yeah. our hearts yeah. or something. You and know, on our There's flesh. physical scars. <laughs> but yeah, the... The heart, memory, scars, f- to pray for um, kind of like the Lord's loving, compassionate presence back in time, yes, you know, back yes. at that time of that surgery to console that infant, um, you know, even though it's long in the past, sort of to invite the Lord to just— make His presence with us known now, that He was present in all times of suffering, and that is a time of suffering or a time yeah. that we regret. And so I, I would encourage this mom really to, as she's learned about these things and questioned her, the decisions that were made, that that it could be turned into a prayer both for her husband, that sounds like he was circumcised, and for her son, that the Lord would in his faithfulness bring good out of that suffering. That's, that's that's the most important prayer we can pray.
0: I agree, Wendy. That is the most important prayer we can pray. And we can trust that all of our sufferings can and will be redeemed as we open ourselves to that redemption. And I can certainly attest to some real beautiful healing and redemption in my in my own experience here. And and, and there's a yeah, it's, it's, this is going to sound strange because we don't like to talk about these things, but it's true. Um, the blood of our salvation, right? There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. That's right out of the scripture. Well, where did Christ first shed his blood for us? It was the blood of his circumcision that first saves us. So there's there's something right there that's so powerfully redemptive rooted in the very loins of our savior. I know we don't even like to think about it, but we sh- in the context of the theology of the body this all makes beautiful, glorious sense and it has helped me to come to recognize that the wound, the very scar of my own circumcision is a reminder that I am united with Christ in his redemptive gift. Uh, The shedding of blood right where it hurts, um, the life-givingness of the man's body, obviously the focal point of that life-givingness is right here, and that life-givingness demands a a certain sacrifice, a certain bleeding, a certain giving of flesh. There can be profound redemptive meaning to all of it. Uh, That said, we didn't circumcise our boys, and I wouldn't want to, and... There can be this feeling of guilt in having done so, uh, let the Lord into that and let him teach you that is it can be redemptive. Do I think you need to confess this? No, Do I, because I don't think you sinned. Sin is done with full knowledge. And if you were like, I hate my little boy's penis and I want him to suffer and I'm going to get him circumcised. Well, then, yeah, you should go confess that. But that is not what we're talking about here at all. So I think the feelings of guilt you have here can be opened up to the Lord and just let him pour that oil of consolation that this suffering itself is redemptive and can be beautifully healing, Mm -hmm. can become something beautifully healing. Yeah. Bless you, dear mom.
1: Our next question is from Alexandra. Thank you so very much, Wendy and Christopher, for the podcast. I didn't listen for some months, but a long drive was the opportunity to catch up. And as so often before, there are a lot of things you said that spoke right into the turbulence of my heart. Oh,
0: bless you, Elizabeth. Thank you for
1: being so open to listening to the Holy Spirit. As a midwife, I'm accompanying a couple that is expecting a child with trisomy 18 and a big heart problem. Mm. They desire so much that their daughter would be baptized. Mm. They've named her Elizabeth. But unfortunately, it's quite possible she will not be born alive. Can you explain the baptism of desire? Any other advice from the TOB perspective will also be very welcome. She has already touched a lot of hearts, but it is an intense time for this family.
0: Very intense. And it's reminding me of the Green Mile again. Mm. Just the, the powerful message of this movie, that Jesus is with us in all of our horrors, in all of our sorrows, in all of our sufferings, he is there. I, I just sense that uh, before I say anything else, I just sense that. This, this is another example of seeing the bleeding Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you have suffered with this couple. Thank, that, thank you, Lord, that you have suffered with this child. Thank you, Lord, that you are present in all that is to come, that nothing, nothing of the suffering is unknown Or untouched by your healing, redemptive love. I think we can trust and should trust fully in the baptism of desire here. The baptism of desire is the recognition of the church that there are situations such as this in which physical baptism might not be possible, right? God is not bound by the sacraments. We know now that should not be taken as well. Then we don't need them. No, no, no. We need the sacraments, uh, and the church promotes the sacraments because we know with certainty that God works through the sacraments. This is the normal path of salvation: is baptism. Right when baptism is physically impossible, but the desire for the baptism is real, and in this case, clear and potent. That baptism of desire is the recognition of the church that God is not bound by his sacraments, but can work outside them to bring about the same effect, and that is certainly what is happening here. I think a certain light that a theology of the body sheds on this, and when I say a theology of the body, I mean you're not going to find this right in John Paul II's catechesis, but when we have a theological perspective on the body, we can recognize that that child is bathed in waters right now. What is baptism? It's a rebirth. Well, can we not through this desire for baptism even visualize those holy waters of the womb as a a baptismal font? Because guess what? The church envisions the baptismal font as the womb of the church, right? So the very prayer of the mother and the father that is that baptism of desire can sanctify the waters of that womb and can be a a visual in prayer of a kind of actuation, if you would, of the baptism of desire, And when that baby is born, what will flow from that mother's body? Blood and water, blood and water, blood and water. And what does the church tell us about the blood and water that flowed from the open heart of Christ? This is the very font of the sacraments of the church. Right there, the very font of the sacramental life of the church is the flow of blood and water. So I would just invite this couple to to envision her womb and the flow of blood and water as the actuation of the baptism of desire. That is the theology of her body right there.
1: Alexandra, I'm so glad this family has you as their midwife and yeah. your, your beautiful heart interceding for them. I I know that children um, conceived that have such serious Um, genetic defects, so much of the world would say, don't bother continuing the pregnancy. In other words, they would recommend an abortion, and this family is choosing to allow their daughter to live as long as the Lord allows her to live. And the mother is as close as she could possibly be to any of her children. And in a way, there is a sense of she has a sick child within her, Although it's, you know, her daughter is living and growing now, she also has a sickness. um, And she's so close to that sick child. And and moms want to be close to their sick Mm. children. That's where our hearts want us to be. When our child is sick, we don't want to leave them. And so what an affirmation of motherhood that is that allows her to journey through this daughter's life. As long as it would last, and and for the father as well, and his uh, just love for his child, um, I would just also encourage them if if they know a priest who would be willing to pray with them, maybe to give the anointing of the sick, perhaps uh, on the womb, um, just to invite those sacramental graces into their journey. Some a couple I know that had a, a baby that they didn't expect to live, they they had their pastor come to the hospital and and she did live shortly um in the hospital, and so he was there and baptized her right away. So those are possibilities as well, just to, you know, recognize the dignity of this journey, to invite the church to give its sacramental support in all the ways that are available.
0: And you may not know that. You know, in case of emergency, lay people have the ability to baptize. Even, get this, even unbaptized people have the ability to baptize. Uh, this, is, this is such a gracious reality of, of the church's life that baptism can be granted in emergency by anyone. So I, just so they know that I would pass that along to them, that at the very moment of birth, as soon as that head crowns, baptize that baby baptize that baby. Um, again, the baptism of desire is sufficient, but the if the the head is visible and you can baptize that baby, baptize that baby. We lift up all our listeners to you, Lord. We thank you for the gift that you are to us, Jesus, the gift that the sacraments are to us, and the consolation that when sacraments aren't possible, there is that grace that comes through the baptism of desire. Lord, help us to know the grace of our own baptism, and through that help us to know that we are created by you from the gift of your own love to be a gift to others, Lord. And we ask that through the grace of our baptism that we would all
1: become what we are.
0: Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.